Hello, everybody, and a big special hello to any disembodied astral plane entities listening in from beyond the ethereal membrane of sleep and across the uncharted imaginal dream sea. I'm Layman Pascal. On behalf of myself, Bruce Alderman, and all the maladjusted, integrally adjacent metaliminal communities out front, so you don't have to be. Today, we're deepening our series on the dreaming arts with integrative psychologist, spiritual practitioner, musician, and descendant of Charlotte Small Thompson. It's Dr. Willow Pearson. Hi, Willow. Hello, Layman. <laughs> How old were you when you realized that dreams weren't just some incidental part of life, but something you were deeply intrigued by and wanted to think more seriously about? A great, really great question. I, the honest answer is I don't know. And the other aspect of an answer to that is, I've never not been engaged in dream life in some way, shape, or form. I always think that my first two languages are dreaming and singing. And I feel like they are deeply tied and interconnected to each other. But um, I, I mean, I can remember probably at about maybe maybe five or six having a recurrent dream that was quite a disturbing one. Um, and I can remember at about maybe 12 or 13 having a different recurrent disturbing dream. And uh, I think that I, I couldn't shake those experiences um, in the daytime, and they became uh, a part of a kind of contempl- you know, kind of contemplation. Like, what is this doing here, and what is this? Uh, what does this have to show me? Uh, what is there possibly to to learn uh, from this space? So. Um, uh, those are the first things that come to mind, quite honestly, the very vivid, the vivid and somewhat mind disturbing aspects of dreams, um, which are also part of There's something you could tell us about the content of those recurring dreams. Uh, I would, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend <laughs> our time that way. No. Okay. <laughs> That's really interesting that you, that you go to the consistency Right, of something that recurs. Yes, I think myself is very similar. That certain characters or certain locations I noticed coming up again and again. Uh-huh. Uh, there was an area in the garden that I would visit in a dream, and it wasn't the same as it was when I was awake, but it seemed to be the same across multiple dreams. Uh huh. So I had to ask myself that you know the ancient question, which is. Is this just a byproduct of my brain, or is there a realm there that has some kind of consistency? Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about that inquiry? Is it an epiphenomenon, or is it a domain? <laughs> yeah. I my own deeply felt uh, experiential uh, sense of knowing is that we live within a dream, within a dream, within a dream, uh, Russian doll fashion. And that um, 
even as we talk about awakening or waking up from a dream, there are farther reaches to go. From my own experience of working with dreams and thinking about dreams throughout the day and night as a continuous unfolding of dream phenomena and experience. There's a sense that we are always dreaming, that we are always within a dream, and that there may be awakenings for sure, and yet there are constant realms of enfolded lulling (laughs) into another dreamscape as well. And I'm curious, you know, so much about the discussion of deep dreamless sleep as a kind of, you could think of it as a fundamental or a foundation or a um, a holding environment, a river that dreams are carried along. And even there, I wonder, I wonder, uh, is there a kind of uh, dreamscape um, in that place? And one of the things that I find myself most curious about in the nether reaches of, of wonderment is, is there a place, um, and you know, this question is, a, is really a timeless question asked many ways, but the way that I think of it is, is there a place in uh, consciousness where all dream activity is registered, where all dream activity has a place in awareness, uh, which is another way of asking, is there a kind of uh, omniscient capacity uh, in the universes at large, which is curious to think about in term- for so many reasons, and maybe we can just leave it right there for the, for this purpose but i do think about it in terms of the way the way i bring that back home in a very immediate sense is even the smallest snippet of a dream can carry so much interesting information from an affective disposition from a cognitive disposition from a relational disposition. And I think that if we were to imagine, let's say, that all dream activity registered in some awareness field, would it not be meaningful to explore even the smallest snippet of a dream that might feel like a hazy fragment from a crazy sleep night uh, as we mostly think about dreams during the night and at the same time would it be interesting to imagine this moment you know that we're having now as a dream a dream within a dream and um, my one of my principal meditation teachers Kempo Sultram Jamso Rinpoche um, has been very fond of singing and saying and oft repeating 
like a dream when you know you're dreaming as a kind of pointing out instruction. Um, and I'm sure that that has many different resonances for many different people, but it's one that's really landed and um, come straight into my heart in terms of how I hold that phraseology and the um, communication of it as a kind of transmission of this realm being like a dream when you know you're dreaming. Wow. There's a lot of threads there. Um, Indeed. The sense that it's, it's not so much the question, what is dreams, but which kind of dream is this? <laughs> yes. Which I think is a great, it's a great shift to, um, to play with. And I think of um, some of the great uh, uh, dream artists of recent times and current times, like uh, James Grotstein, um, who sadly passed away in 2015, who I had the privilege of um, mentoring with. And he wrote a book called, Who is the Dreamer Who Dreams the Dream? And I just love his title. You know, it's a, like a psychoanalytic koan of sorts. And I think of the work of uh, Stephen Eisenstadt um, at Pacifica and think about his uh, relationship to the living world as living dream and what it means in, from these very different authors and very different thinkers and theoreticians and practitioners to help us uh, work towards dreaming throughout the day and night. There's, a, there's an interesting sense that I get in the way you talk about it relative to the, the basic states, right? There's a long discourse around waking, dreaming, and sleeping as these fundamental human conditions. And they're very often thought of in sort of silos separately from each other. Right, but it does seem like in order for there to be reality, that they're always entwined to some degree. That you never Absolutely. find waking without the dreamless and the dream, and you never find deep sleep without some subtle residue of dream mixed in. That's so beautifully rendered. I I really appreciate you saying that. I feel like that really mirrors uh, uh, a dimension of of um, how I hold that too. And I think of it as the co-emergence of waking, dreaming, sleeping, um, or we could say the co-emergence of gross, subtle, causal, or nirmanakaya, sambhogakaya, dharmakaya as inseparable. And that um, it's only our mental conditioning and apparatus and need to differentiate in order to appreciate a whole that goes through these exercises of making these really meaningful and helpful distinctions um, in order to put them back together again. The, the sense of another awareness that registers all of the dreams, right? And then there's different ways we could get, could be, an awareness here or it could be an awareness there it's intriguing to me because very often when i dream i feel like in the dream i have more access to my other dreams 
than I do when I'm awake. Right? I'm like, oh, right, I've had this dream before. And when I come out, when I come into waking, so-called, uh, I lose, I can't remember the dreams, but I remember this flavor that I just could remember the dream in that other phase. And so one of my questions is, uh, you know, is it the same self? I very casually say my dreams, but is that me? Is that another personality? It seems to have access to different memories and know other things about my dreaming landscape that I don't know. Yeah. Are the waker and the dreamer the same person? Right. That's a great question. I, I love the question. At the thing that comes to mind to me is um, one of my dear friends and wonderful colleagues. Um, his name is Dr. Robin Begay, and he's a psychologist in practicing in Portland, Oregon. He just um, is about to come out with a book in October called Oblivion, Wisdom, Madness, and Music. And it's commentaries on the work of psychoanalyst Michael Eigen. And um, he, Robin says, um, essentially, you know, how, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but how wonderful that we have two minds. And I think what I take away from that is how wonderful that we have this capacity to realize non-duality by virtue of being of two minds that we can always look in two directions at once and i think the same goes in this territory with waking and sleeping that um and you could say in, in the same breath and and i will because i think it's worth doing is um you could say the same for consciousness and the unconscious you know so much of our psycho-spiritual enterprise is about consciousness with a capital c waking up and coming into awareness and i think that one of the things that it really um terribly misses is how important it is to protect the unconscious from consciousness. And dreaming is one of the most incredible technologies to do just that. And, you know, in, and I'm taking that directly. Um, I want to uh, attribute that um, quote and understanding to, again, uh, James Grotstein. There's a note I have here um, from Michael Eigen's work in his book, 2016, where he says, Grotstein, in Grotstein's work in 2000 and 2007, spoke about the id having to be protected from the ego. Loosely speaking, more broadly, the unconscious needing protection from consciousness. And I think that this really kind of comes to the the true heart of non-duality of wisdom and confusion not two different things you know we could say samsara nirvana not two different things we could think of it in many ways but i like and being a psychologist um and not a dharma teacher you know my uh, own kind of portal into this work is thinking about 
the importance of holding the unconscious and consciousness as um, uh, trying to find a method for non-dual realization between those two things. And I think that sleeping and waking is uh, one, one way into that. And dreaming is a fantastic portal into that. When we think of ourselves as being conscious and unconscious beings, then sometimes there's a tendency to think, well, how can we merge those? Uh, But then there's this other non-dual wisdom, which says the thing that you think is the separation is already intrinsically merged. So you don't have to force them to merge. So this idea about protecting the unconscious and maybe giving it a sacred space is fascinating. And it leads me to want to ask how you, how you relate to practices where consciousness is invited to intervene, whether it's lucid dreaming or whether people try to set their dreams up to show them something or reveal something, you know, when is that useful? And when is that an unnecessary intervention in a complex system that needs protection from conscious schemes? Sure. Well, you know, my own um, path is I'm very interested in what Andrew Holacek calls lucid living. And um, I really appreciated his recent uh, podcast on uh, Roger Walsh's channel, where he talked about um, in deep transformation, thinking about lucid living and thinking about how that, you know, in some ways is the um, fruition of a kind of, uh, lucid dreaming practice, you might say, in some ways. And I'll say I um, I am not a lucid dreamer. I have not um, found kinship with lucid dreaming practices. And that could say many things about me and my relationship to the practices, but it is what it is. And I really um, am deeply Uh, in reverence for the dreams as they are given, not just as as they can pejoratively be thought of as sort of mere sort of uh, neurotic reruns of the events of the day before, you know, Um, but rather as what I talk about in my book, The Spiritual Psyche, uh, in psychotherapy, mysticism, inner subjectivity, and psychoanalysis is I have a chapter there called Caesura's of Dreaming, Being and Becoming, Thinking and Imagining. And in that chapter, what I really um, uh, endeavor to do is to hold the sacredness of the dream just as it is given, as if it was. Uh, offering of original artistry. And so this is the metaphor that I use for dreams as original artistry. And as an original piece of art, there may be times to resituate it, refashion it, repaint it, re-sculpt it, you know, in the fashion of lucid dreaming. Uh, But those um, efforts towards Um, that kind of mastery and control has not been my path with dreaming. My path with dreaming has been to really 
unfold and discover and uh, really um, uh, investigate and be curious about the dream images as themselves. Um, and so maybe maybe this would be a good place to share with you um, just a couple of uh, a kind of threefold um, way into dreaming practice that I wrote about in my article, Dreaming Integral in 2014. Um, is this a good time for that? Or did you have another question? Uh, let me ask you one on? thing before we yes, get please. to that structure. And that's, yeah. uh, you, you're using the word caesura, which is yeah. probably unfamiliar to most people. I know that yes. it means, uh, it's used to mean a cut in music. Uh, it's very uh, attractive to Bruce and I in terms of separative connection and connective separation in our philosophical work. I think it was introduced into uh, psychology through maybe Bion's work, but maybe you could say something for people who don't know what that word is pointing at. Absolutely. So, so in music, caesura actually means a pause in a line of music and in that sense, it's neither audible nor inaudible. Um, it's uh, something that isn't denoted with the with the uh, the notation structure. It's just seen as a pause, a resting place. And in its psychoanalytic context, it's really seen as a permeable membrane that links and separates at the same time. So um, it links and separates in this. And I liked, I liken it in my um, uh, recent article that um, is going to come out in the Young Journals, uh, Culture and Psyche, I believe in November, the title of the article is Integral Relational Practice of Dreaming the Caesura. And so I get quite involved in that term and thinking about it as a method of non-duality. And basically it's saying that uh, one way to think about Caesaras in the familiar camp for us of integral is to think about how the four quadrants represent a kind of Caesara in the sense that they are distinct from each other. They're separated from each other. So we have you know, uh, the big three, or we have, we could say, um, you know, I, it, we, it's together. Um, but we um, also think of them as linked and conjoined, and that they are a sort of, in a way, a kind of artificial distinction that um, is in the service of recognizing a larger whole. And so it's this principle of deconstructing um, in order to create a, a greater construction or to be able to frag in order to recombine at a later date when those fragments can be uh, brought together in a more complete way. So I think that the probably one of the best illustrations of Caesura vis-a-vis integral theory is how the caesura of the four quadrants comes about. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. So now, now would be a great time to maybe walk us through some of the key elements in, in your integral framework for dreaming. 
Sure. Yeah. And I'll say actually, um, the, uh, so, so there's two parts that I'd love to share with you, Liam. And then one of them is um, from this 2014 article, Dreaming Integral, because um, it gets at, um, there was some back and forth that I had with the editors about, you know, why not call it integral dreaming? And I felt quite adamant that uh, the title was Dreaming Integral, because um, integral, of course, itself is a dream. And um, it's not a reified thing. It is a um, psycho-spiritual map and method and set of practices to come into a fuller um, existence uh, that includes non-existence. And I think that uh, I want to title this piece Dreaming Integral to have that remembrance and that consistent pointing out instruction that all of us are exposed to along the path of, you know, regard all dharmas as dreams, including this one, which I think is one of uh, Ken Wilber's favorite mantras that is so apropos and so terribly helpful. And so in that spirit, um, this is from Dreaming Integral, uh, and um, I really came down to three injunctions in working with dreams. And the first injunction is to see into and through the dream. And you have to unpack that a little bit to say, to see into the dream, to be very curious about the dream image or images themselves, just as they are, and then to see through the dream. And the through is a double entendre, which means to see through as in to unveil the dream. And at the very same time, to see through the dream as in to embody the dream. And so I was really curious in your conversation with Bruce uh, when you talked about, you know, all the, you sort of mapped out all the different ways of being with dreams and talking about, well, is it to sort of unpack the dream or is it to sort of, you know, embody the dream as it is either or, and, and what I'm saying in this instruction is yes. And they're both important. And I think that that's a hallmark of any integral approach to dreaming is that we're both interested in being with in a deep way as well as seeing through, i.e. a kind of interpretation or deconstruction, as well as returning to a kind of embodied presence with the dream. Um, and so that these are just cliff notes, of course, in our short hour together, but I but I'll but I'll tarry on because I think they point to a few things that hopefully could be helpful to some folks. Um, uh, one, the next um, injunction is sing the dream that wakes you up. So at the end of the day, we've got this incredible eight zone, you know, space uh, to play in of samsara, nirvana, inseparable. And we can distill it into four quadrants and we can play with all kinds of lines and we can play with stages and states 
uh, and types and be able to consider a dream from all of those wonderful vantage points that that integral vocabulary lends our curious minds to to you know look into and walk about but at the end of the day what i'm really striving for here is the ontological uh, epiphany of the dream. So what sing the dream that wakes you up? What is it that is most vitalizing, most alive, most compelling, most follows you around day and night, you know, like the puppy you never had (laughs) and just wants your attention? you know, wants, wants you to know about it. And when I see sing the dream that wakes you up, um, in some cases, I mean that quite literally, like there are ways to play with uh, singing fragments of dreams that can help bring it alive in a kind of bliss emptiness kind of way. Um, but I mean that in the sense of singing or playing, you know, with the dream that wakes you up to be able to play with it to be able to um, not try to pick it apart. You're not trying to dissect it. You're trying to be a playmate with it and trying to learn something about it. And then that that sounds very fun and positive, (laughs) but I'm assuming a lot of people, the thing that hangs around with them all day from the dream is not like a puppy, but like some horrible, you know, disfigured hound or something like that. A lot of people seem to wake up with trailing some very murky, problematic feeling they'd much rather put down. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I've been writing a piece uh, called welcoming dreams for uh, a chapter for a, a a book for Routledge, where um, I contrast two very disturbing dreams with a very ecstatic dream, and talk about the importance of welcoming all of them, you know, not just the ones that we would prefer, um, but also the ones that we would choose to relegate to the unconscious and not look at. And so um, I think there's always a portion of the dream that can, I I almost want to say strengthen something in you when it feels like it touches a um, fearful, broken, disheartening place. And I think um, Stephen Eisenstadt's book on dream tending and his um, audio series on dream tending are are wonderful tools for um, working with nightmares. He has a couple of chapters on working with nightmares in particular. And he has a few methods that for people who struggle with recurring nightmares can be particularly helpful. I won't I won't go into that at this point in time, but other than to to reference it as as a tool. Perfect. And was there a, a third injunction in your series? Yeah. There? Yeah, the very last one is just to rest 
in and as the dream. So this sense again of kind of back to where we started with the Russian doll dreamscape that we live in perhaps, that you can rest in the dream as the dream. And I think of, um, you know, Freud gave us the idea of the dream navel and this idea that there's a, you can go endlessly far with dream interpretation, but there's a certain point at which you stop, you relax, you rest. You've, you've done enough uh, kind of inquiry and it's about resting with the dream right where it is. And I think that that's a kind of hearkening back to allowing the id to be protected from the ego, allowing the unconscious to be protected from consciousness, that it's actually, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, endless beautiful stories in mythology about um, the, uh, the blindness that occurs by staring at the sun and how important it is that we fashion uh, the shades of the lids of our eyes, you know, at night and how we uh, look through the veils of this world of appearances during the day so as not to be completely undone by the quite incredible, uh, awe-inspiring magnificence of this life. And that, um, you know, one of the things that Eigen talks about is how we can um, suffer from being too much alive sometimes, which is, again, not something we hear in our psycho-spiritual circles too much. Certainly, I didn't hear them in my transpersonal education. You know, it was always seeking the next domain and the next uh, awakening and that um, bringing uh, the transpersonal teachings uh, and the integral teachings together with the spiritually infused uh, contemporary uh, relational psychoanalytic work has been really meaningful to me in that regard. This uh, question of when not to work with your dreams is really interesting, right? In terms yeah. of resting, in terms of allowing the unconscious to have some protective space from consciousness. And I imagine also, you know, the what kind of motive is the person indulging when they look toward their dreams? Because we might say to many people, you should pay more attention to your dreams. They're very rich and very interesting and lead you deeper into the experience of what you are. But there seem to be many people who might be just narcissistically self-obsessed by any little thing about themselves. And we might want to say to them, you know, put your dreams down for a while. They're not quite as exciting as you think just because they're yours. Mm. I guess I I think that anything can be taken as a, as a project for you know self aggrandizement for sure. Um, dreams are no exception to that. Um, but I think that um, 
I'm just, I'm checking myself before I'm speaking because I think that, that probably um, this is one of those instances where thinking about the, you know, thinking about Cook Reuter and uh, uh, Suzanne Cook Reuter and Bina Sharma's work on the nine levels of increasing embrace um, is uh, very apropos in terms of, you know, it would be interesting to think about the uh, nine levels of dream interpretation or regard or dream uh, relationship across those nine levels of increasing embrace and how they could be um, um, how they can be seen quite differently, quite a bit differently. I mean, really what we've been talking about for most of our conversation is more of a post-conventional um, uh, relationship to dreaming. And I think you make a really good point that there can be time to put something down, just like there can be really good times to not be in therapy. And there can be really good times to just not be meditating. And there can be really important times to stop one's yoga practice, you know, that all of these things can become tools of attachment that we need to take a break from in order to reset. And that um, oftentimes it's because our overzealous superego the ego that wants to lose itself um, that and aggrandizes itself in the process unwittingly, you know, needs to um, just be able to gentle itself a little bit. And I'm sure the same is true for dreaming as well. At the very same moment, I am going to say, I believe that we are always dreaming whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, and in our waking life and in our nighttime dreaming life, that dream dreaming is always happening. And where that relates to deep dreamless sleep, well, I'll catch you in my next life. You, uh, you mentioned Bina and Suzanne, right? And obviously one of the major elements of integrative approaches is this sense of level-like structures of enfoldment and embrace. How do, you, how do you think of or work with levels either in dreams or also in the interpretation of dreams? Yeah. Well, when I um, invoked that injunction of sing the dream that wakes you up, I think it's a it's a code for zero in on the level that's activated for whatever reason. And I think in the same way that we were talking about the um, co-emergence of gross, subtle, causal, or Nimanakaya, Sabokakaya, Dharmakaya, that we are also talking about the co-emergence of psychotic, borderline, neurotic, and post-conventional and unitive experience. And um, uh, I actually wrote a paper back in 2016 that I think might see the light of day publishing someday soon. Um, it's in, in the channels. We'll see if it comes through, but it's on my website in any event uh, from a little piece from my dissertation where 
Ken and I put together the uh, Wilbur Pearson sphere, which is understanding that basically all of these levels are on tap for us all the time, right? And, and we have our basic understanding that any level that we sort of identify or cohere around, hopefully not, hopefully quite loosely identify, but cohere around, is only something that we uh, inhabit 50% or more of the time. And so there's quite a lot else going on, right? And that all of these levels are on tap. And I think dreams are that way. I think dreams are an all level experience. And that our ability to tap or to douse or to connect or to be enlivened by that, to sing that which wakes you up, is our ability to touch the level that is asking for our attention. Whether it's the level where we tend to reside 50% or more of the time or not. And um, certainly we you know, from the position of um, the Pearson-Wilbur sphere, there's the understanding that the psychotic, the borderline, the neurotic, and the post-conventional and unitive spaces are co-emergent at all times. And so how do we join that um, with our understanding of uh, the increasing levels of embrace. And I think that that's a big part of um, what I hope that my work in the in integral relational space in my small bit with my little bits of writing and bits of teaching can contribute to in some way of helping to hold the those two truths. When we're thinking of all the levels co-emerging and co-enacting and we're thinking of this sort of adaptive work with dreams where you sort of stay with the most lively aspect of it um why isn't it enough to just do that work what do we get from also having a map of levels is that significant to the process or could we do without it i think it's hugely helpful i think in in its best uh, regard. It's an incredibly skillful means helping us to, as I say, sort of tease apart and distinguish and um, differentiate and to um, parse these things out in order that at a later date, we can bring some of them back together. Um, and so I think like Bina Sharma's um, uh, injunction that at the at the um, you could say the height or culmination of her model of vertical development is one of no boundaries, and that it is one of being able to really engage um, folks wherever they are, and it is by virtue of deep study in the levels as distinct, distinguishable, and shining in their own place, that we can see the kaleidoscope in a more brilliant way. So I think that there's, um, I know that um, 
Zach Stein, for example, has written in the 2010 book on integral theory and action about how integral um, work is operating for different folks at different levels. And, um, and that's necessary with any educational instrument. Um, and that's not a cause for despair. That's a cause for celebration. And uh, I think as long as we keep going. Beautiful. What do the what do the words host, guest, and visit mean for you? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the question. So uh, let me just actually grab a note from uh, my paper for the Young Journal because what I wrote at the end is the background presence which is a nod to Eigen's work in 2009, or host, which I speak about in my article in 2014, composing this practice, this practice being the integral relational practice of dreaming the Caesura, which we haven't really had time for today, but maybe another time, um, appears variously as beyonds O, so this is uh, the psychoanalytic lineage of Wilfred Bion as brought forward and advanced by Michael Eigen and James Grotstein, who have been my two primary mentors in that tradition. Um, or emotional truth is another way of translating O. And the idea is that O is unknowable, ever unknowable, and yet leading us on. Integral psychology's antecedent self is also the host or the I.I. As we come to best understand that through our study of that small phrase. And Vajrayana Buddhism's appearance emptiness, which you can also carry forward as Dharma teachers can teach students about the relationships between appearance emptiness, luminosity, clarity emptiness, and their uh, interpenetrating and yet differentiated spaces as well, that could, in a word, come back to uh, how Ken often uh, refers to suchness um, as being the ground. The host so is the those. fundamental um, quality of opening that makes things available. Thank you. Yeah. And and these are these are just names that point to specific lineages that have helped us understand that open space and how to keep going in that open space. So I would say that's the host ultimately the host, and that the guest is the dream images themselves, the dream images in all of their varieties and all of their um, extraordinary display, horrific and beautific alike, no difference. Um, this is about all dreams, the nightmares as well as the ecstatic dreams, um, that they are all original artistry trying to teach us about something. 
and that it's the breakdown in dreaming that is what Grotstein called pathology. That he really said it was our inability to dream, which is the root of all pathology, which is quite a radical statement if you really think about it. And um, that the visit is the great curiosity of how those two things are related, the dream image and the host, of how we are visited by day and by night in the same way that you and I are visiting together right now in this conversation. No different than that. In the kind of dream that we call the natural scientific universe, there are lots of different types of organisms. These ones dream, which other ones dream? Well, I was really touched by, uh, uh, perhaps you also saw, I believe it was a Scientific American article, if I'm not mistaken, that talked about how jumping spiders dream or appear to, that they have REM sleep. And uh, this was a study done in Harvard recently um, that gave us cause to believe that spiders dream. And um, I found that quite curious. Um, I always wonder what my cats are dreaming when their eyes are fluttering and their paws are scurrying. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't study the animal world. I study the human world. So I'm quite, quite uh, ill-equipped to go much further than just talking about those little bits that have captured my interest in the news and notes, uh, Lehman, that, that's out there. Okay. Well, we'll say it goes at least as far down as spiders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Do you um, record your dreams? I have recorded um, in this article that I mentioned that I'm writing for Routledge on welcoming dreams. Uh, there was a song that was given to me in a dream that I woke up in the middle of the night and the melody came with the dream and I did record it. And I work with that dream uh, in that article and it's something that I'm um, recording next month and looking forward to sharing on my uh, music website, the lionessroars.org website, uh, where I have my music available for anybody to listen to. And um, it's, uh, it's the recording that I usually do with my dreams is I just have my iPod, you know, right next to my bed. And um, uh, one of my best Dharma friends is my cat because he gets me up about three times a night because he's incredibly spoiled and he likes to eat about every four to six hours. <laughs> so he'll wake me up and I'll go to feed him. And when I wake up, you know, usually it's interrupted in the middle of a dream. And so it's the perfect time to write a snippet or an entire dream, depending on my motivation. Um, and so I do keep a dream log in that way and record them in that way. And uh, I find myself going back to them quite a bit 
choose select ones to write about to sometimes illustrate some of these principles. Um, but I would say that beyond the actual transcription of the dream, you know, writing on my phone, that every day there's some trace of a nighttime dream that I am with in the daytime in, invariably. And um, it's been largely through studying James Grotstein and Steven Eisenstadt's work that I have been applying that much more to my daytime experience, um, which, you know, I would be remiss to, to not say, you know, undergirded by a deep study in meditation in the Vajrayana and, and Mahayana schools, uh, which I think has also given me the great um, motivation to look into the dreams of the day and night as continuous. When I read your article on Charlotte Small Thompson, I thought about dreams and ancestors and partly the way ancestors can presence themselves for us in our dreams, but also my curiosity about how our ancestors dreamed. Uh, we can look at skulls and think that, oh, people were like us several hundred thousand years ago, but tiny little changes in the soft tissue or the levels of chemistry could have made it very different for them. And I wonder just what your intuition tells you about whether our ancestors prehistorically or in the first attempts at human civilization, whether they experienced their dreams the way we do or not. Yeah. I know that we are visited by our ancestors in our dreams quite frequently. And it's a mystery as to how that occurs. There are many ideas about it. The idea of I'm projecting my loved one into my dreamscape, having an experience of them, to the idea of the visit, that I'm being visited by an ancestor um, in my dream. And um, you know, I, can, I can share one dream that caught my attention quite vividly, which is um, I had uh, an Uncle Stanley who was the, um, let's see, he would have been the great, great, two greats, I think, grandson of Charlotte Small. And um, this is the piece that, that Lehman and I are talking about, of course, is this uh, second part of this Young Journal article where I talk about my great, 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 great grandmother um, and uh, talk about my dreaming of her because there's so few historical facts about her. And so back to Uncle Stanley, um, I had a dream. I was in my 20s and um, he appeared in my room and it was quite clearly him. And it was, to my recollection, no more and no less than an appearance. And um, it was interesting in the sense that it was in the corner of a room. So it wasn't a sense of being inside my mind. It was a sense of being in the domain of my dreaming. 
And I learned the next morning that he had died. And I think that many, many people, I think, have dreams akin to what I'm describing. And um, what's curious to me is I hadn't thought about my Uncle Stanley for years. We were not close. We, uh, you know, didn't have a, a, a very uh, strong connection. And yet there he was. And um, I take that as a, a visit of an ancestor um, at, a, at a time when the world's uh, veils become much thinner. And uh, so I can only relate to that from my own ontological experience. And I take it, you know, um, with great imports on that level. And I think that many, many people have dreams of visitations of ancestors. And I think that it seems to me that it, that it, um, I, you know, Freud would have us talk about wish fulfillment and wanting to dream about someone who we miss, who we love, who we care for to appear in our dream. And perhaps that is an important part of it. And perhaps there's much more to it. And I like to, um, I like to imagine the latter. I think maybe we're at the end for today. Indeed. This is uh, a lovely visitation through the thin veil of the digital universe. <laughs> and a lovely oh. guest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for reaching out from Thunder Bay to here in Oakland, Emeryville. I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk, Layman. It's been really fun to be able to talk about this work that is so meaningful to me and I know that is so uh, meaningful to so many. Thanks very much, Willow. Thanks, Layman. Take care. Mm-hmm.